This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. It's Halloween, and it's all about giving in to haunts, spooky creatures, and scary activities. It's also a time to celebrate books that give us the creeps. Indigenous authors take horror beyond the cliches of Indian burial grounds. In their stories, we find Native characters in familiar settings, struggling against curses, bad medicine, monsters, and murderers. We're talking with Native authors today about spooky books, coming up after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Protests continue in Guatemala with indigenous groups and others calling for the resignation of judicial officials they say are corrupt for trying to block the president-elect from taking power. Maria Martin has more. From protests outside the Guatemala City headquarters of the public ministry to those by Guatemalan migrants in cities worldwide, this is the fifth week of a national strike the indigenous newspaper Prensa Comunitaria calls the megaphone of an unequal and impoverished country without opportunities. In Manhattan, Guatemalan migrants also called for the resignation of outgoing President Alejandro Chamatey, who so far hasn't made any move to acknowledge protesters' demands. Meanwhile, there's mourning in the Xinca community in the department of Jutiapa after this weekend's murder of 65-year-old human rights defender Noe Gomez. Gomez was much respected and had been active in organizing his community's participation in the peaceful protests of the last few weeks, which called for the government to respect the results of the August election that saw anti-corruption candidate Bernardo Arevalo elected president in a landslide. Shinka organizations are calling for the authorities to investigate Gomez's murder and for a stop to the violence against those taking part in Guatemala's unprecedented pro-democracy national strike. Amaria Martin. Earlier this month, Colorado released a review of Native American boarding schools in the state. The report brings together a wide range of information about the schools from the late 1800s to the early 1900s. Clark Adamitis reports. After a year of research, including geophysical analysis of the old Fort Lewis Cemetery in Hesperus, Colorado, the state published its 120-page report. In addition to broad histories of each school, the report shares anecdotal stories of individual children. The entire subject matter is really emotional and really intense. Dr. Holly Norton is Colorado State archaeologist, and she led the boarding school study. Norton says one story came out of a school newspaper published. There was a lot of disease that hit the school really quickly, and it, it kind of devastated the student population. And so the youth pulled all of their students out of Fort Lewis. There was one student, Frank, and they called him an orphan. A lot of these orphans actually weren't. They had parents and family. But I think the government could designate them as orphans and make it easier for them to make decisions without having to consult with the parents or the tribe. In the newspaper article, Frank Taylor's story intersects with the story of another Native American child. A young girl, she must have only been like three or four. Maybe she had wandered away 
from her family. Frank found her. They brought her back to the school. They didn't try to find her parents. They didn't try to contact any adults. They cut her hair. They changed her clothes. And they immediately kind of enrolled her and adopted her into the school system. The father came and found her and collected her and, and took her home. I'm just imagining this very casual kidnapping, this idea that it was okay for people at the school to essentially abduct these children. Colorado's new report on Indian boarding schools recognizes and remembers children like Frank Taylor. He lived more than half his life at the Fort Lewis Indian boarding school. He died of pneumonia there when he was 11 years old. I'm Clark Adamitis. And I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by BNSF Railway, proudly supporting the nation's economy by moving the goods that feed, supply, and power communities across the country. More at bnsf.com slash tribal relations. Support by Sanofsky Chambers Law, championing tribal sovereignty and Native American rights since 1976, from opioids litigation to treaty rights to tribal self-governance, with offices in Washington, D.C., New Mexico, California, and Alaska. Sanofsky Chambers Law. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm your host, Sean Spruce. Today is Halloween. What are you doing to get into the spirit of the season? One spooky book with Native authors might do the trick. Never Whistle at Night, an indigenous dark fiction anthology. It includes works by Tommy Orange, Kate Hart, and Kelly Jo Ford, and two writers who are with us today and will tell us why there's a demand for spooky indigenous stories. One of our guests also has a creepy novella released today. We also have a new author who dives into a story about a native cook on a journey with some creepy twists and turns. And we'll get a few more recommendations for books that will get your adrenaline pumping or at least complete your dive into the Halloween vibe. So before spooky season ends, let's add to your reading list and get into our conversation about horror in indigenous literature. You're welcome to join us, too. Tell us about your favorite spooky books by Indigenous authors. We're at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Joining us now from Edmonton in Alberta, Canada, is Richard Van Camp. He's an author, storyteller, and mentor. He's Plicho Diné. Richard, welcome to Native America Calling. Oh, hey, Masicho, Donate, Donate. So good to have, uh, you know, to be with everybody. I'm kind of scared about what everybody's going to talk about, actually. I've got the shakes, cousin. i got the shakes. <laughs> well, i got to ask you, Richard, what, what's your favorite? What do you love best about Halloween this time of year? Well, I love everything. I mean, I think that we spend the whole year just gearing up for this day. We watch spooky movies, read spooky books. We call our toughest aunties and get them to tell us their, you know, their most terrifying stories. And 
it, it just prepares us for this day of celebration, you know, this spooky time. I love it. All right. Also joining us today from Halifax, Nova Scotia, is Tiffany Morris. She's an author and she's Mi'kmaq. Tiffany, welcome to the show as well. Well, Alvin, so nice to be on. Absolutely. And Tiffany, what do you love best about Halloween and, and spooky stories too? Oh my gosh, everything. I don't know. I always have. And uh, like Richard said, like spend the whole year gearing up for this day. So um, just looking at kind of the macabre side of life and just, uh, you know, trying to have some fun with it. Right, right. Well, I know Halloween is, is a big deal here in my house, and uh, we're getting everything ready for later this evening. The candy's ready, the pumpkins are carved, and, and we're just all excited. And I'm really excited to talk with both of you folks about this new anthology, Never Whistle at Night. And I've had a chance to read most of the stories in it. I've read the stories that, that you both wrote, and I really enjoy them. And uh, Richard, let's start with you. And, and what got you involved with this project, this anthology? I think it was Shane Hawk and, and Theodore Van Else wrote to me, and they had read my work before. I've written horror before in my short story collections, and they said, listen, no holds barred, no, hold, no holding back. Give us your scariest story. We'll know if you're cheating. <laughs> and I was like, I don't think you can handle it. And they're like, no, no, seriously, no, no, it's got to be under 10,000 words. And so I said, okay, here we go. I need a couple months. Because I'd already started working on something quietly, and then this just gave me permission to, you know, I think with with great horror, Shane, you have to cross lines, you have to break things, and I certainly crossed the line here. And this is the one short story I've asked my wife never to read, and she's agreed. Mm. And, and with that, the, the title of, of this short story is is very, very spot on. It's titled The Scary or Scariest Story Ever. Richard, what can you tell us about this story without giving too much away? Well, my little short story, Scariest Story Ever, takes place in the fictional community that I've created for my darkest stories, Fort Simmer Northwest Territories in Denenday, where I'm from. It's about a group of kids who befriend a master storyteller named Irina, and they just love spending time with her, but they're hunting. They're quietly hunting for the scariest story she knows, and she shares with them the weed to go stories, you know, the haunted house stories and sky people stories. And then finally they basically just tell her like, come on now, we've heard most of these stories before. We know you're holding, you have to tell us the scariest story. You know, we'll do anything, anything that you ask. And she says, well, you know, I'm not too sure you want to hear it. You know, you're only kids for a little while. And so she gives them three challenges. Number one is they all had to go home and clean their rooms. So they went kicking and screaming all the way home. They cleaned their rooms. They huck finned it and totally helped each other out. Then they came back and <laughs> they felt tough, eh? Like when you got your first hickey, felt tough, eh? <laughs> Thought you were good. Anyways, then uh, she gives them a series of challenges and they do it all. And she has no choice. And then she says, okay, we'll come to my house at 8 o'clock on a certain day. And they all show up and they're ready. They're prepped. And uh, But something's changed. Irina has the wood stove going. It's really hot in her house. There's a big pot of uh, water bubbling away on the, on the stove. And there's two small things wrapped in frozen black clad garbage bags. Uh, popped yeah. up on the couch. And I'll end with this. 
she gives them another chance. She says, you know, don't make me thaw them. They don't like it when I saw them for nothing. This is still your chance to leave. And the boys decide to stay, and one of them realizes that the, the small black things in the frozen black glad garbage bags are starting to move. Uh, I'll leave it at that. Oh, geez. Okay, all right. Well, that's a... Uh, it's really, really riveting story for sure. Uh, Tiffany, your story in, in the anthology is titled Night in the Chrysalis. What can you tell us about it? Well, it's uh, set in Halifax, and it's in an apartment. Well, it's a house um, that my protagonist is moving into for the first night. So it's pretty empty, and she's all alone. Her auntie's moving in the next day. And as she tries to fall asleep, weird things keep happening to her, and the house itself seems to be coming alive. So as she tries to figure out what's going on, there's weird stuff happening to the walls and to the stairs, and she feels something watching her in the dark. Something watching her in the dark. Um, Tiffany, this this story, it, it's it's really moving and it, it's very like realistic. I think anybody can relate to being in a situation like this and, and she's in this new house and she's alone. And, and where did you come up with this idea? Where did, what was the inspiration? Well, I wanted to get into a little bit um, just how cities feel very haunted. And Halifax is a very old city. And even before um, the settlers came, like Mi'kmaq people were coming and we were gathering here and it was a very spiritual place. And then you add in the history that happened since colonization and there's like shipwrecks and all kinds of morbid stuff that's happened here. So it's just a very deeply spiritual place. And I wanted to tap into that a little bit. Uh, have my protagonist, who's Mingma herself, deal with a ghost who is not a friendly ancestor spirit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, certainly not. Tiffany, this anthology, Never Whistle at Night, an indigenous dark fiction anthology, um, how significant is this book, do you think, uh, in the overall literary world right now? Oh, I think extremely. And I think there's been a real hunger for Native horror stories, specifically Indigenous horror stories. Um, it's been a long time coming, and I'm so glad that uh, Shane and Theodore were folks to kind of bring it forward for us, because um, even reading it myself, you know, I just, I loved every single story. And I've been hearing that feedback from a lot of people who have read it. So I'm I'm so grateful that I'm part of it. <laughs> Yeah. And what is it about Indigenous horror stories? What makes them different than, than mainstream horror? What is it that gives it that special Indigenous touch? I think that there's, you know, a cultural survivance that exists for all of us, and that's through story and our way of sorting through and organizing reality is so related to story and has been from time immemorial. So. I think that Indigenous people have a lot to say with horror, and I think that, you know, people are finally ready to listen <laughs> and really excited to listen. And that makes it a really exciting time to be a Native horror writer and a fan of 
Indigenous horror in general. Now, there are, are many other short stories in this anthology, um, more than 20, and they just range a uh, wide, wide variety of topics and, and different approaches, different Indigenous communities, just a very good sampling of of what Indigenous horror authors have to offer. And this book was just recently published. And uh, Never Whistle at Night, that is the title of the book. And Tiffany, I know that you also have a new book that's being released today. And we're going to take a short break, but when we come back, uh, we're going to give you a chance to, to give us a reading from your new book and tell us more about that novella that's uh, coming out today. And Richard as well. Uh, we're going to have a, a reading from you um, and, and just want to hear more about your perspectives on Indigenous horror and what got you into the genre and what readers can expect from from this new anthology as well as some of these other works that we're going to discuss today. So anybody who's listening to the show right now, uh, if you can relate to Indigenous horror or if you're just a, a fan of, of scary stories and scary books, we'd really like to hear your thoughts. Uh, if you want to share any of your favorite scary books or scary authors, give us a call. We've got the phone lines open right now, 1-800-996-2848. It is Halloween, October 31st here at Native America Calling. And we are in the zone here, just getting into these scary stories, these creepy tales from Indigenous authors. So stay with us. We're going to be right back. A non-native couple refuses to comply with a tribal court order to turn over a native child to her native relatives. That's just one of the twists and turns in a tragic case that highlights the difficulty of enforcing the Indian Child Welfare Act, despite the law's strength. We'll learn more about it in the next Native America Calling. The Association on American Indian Affairs welcomes all to Tribal Museums Day, December 2nd through the 10th. Tribal museums may offer no-cost or reduced admission, art markets, and cultural demonstrations. Tribal Museums Day honors Native nations as the experts of their diverse cultures. A map of tribal museums and more is available at indian-affairs.org slash tribalmuseumsday. The Association on American Indian Affairs supports this show. You're listening to Native America Calling. We're talking with indigenous authors today about their work in the horror genre. Do you have a favorite scary book by an indigenous author? Or do you like to scare yourself by reading scary stories at night? There's plenty of time to join this conversation. We're at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. And our first two guests on the show today, Richard Van Camp and Tiffany Morris, they are both uh, short story writers in this new anthology, Never Whistle at Night. And Tiffany, in addition to the new anthology, you also have a new book being released today. Tell us more about it. Yeah, thanks so much. Uh, my book is called Green Fuse Burning. It follows an Ulnu, which is Mi'kmaq, uh, artist who her girlfriend sends her off on an artist residency. She forged a grant application to make it happen, and they've been having a lot of problems. So 
this artist, Rita, she's feeling a lot of anxiety as she goes to the pond where her cabin is to paint. And as she's on the land there, she's noticing stranger and stranger things happening. Uh, it's a climate novella, so there's a lot of like anxiety about climate change and climate grief coming through and what she's experiencing. The rhythms of nature are all off. And she's back in the land where her uh, grandparents and parents had lived for a while before being forcibly removed. So she's got some historical trauma coming back to her at the same time. So there's a lot of like questioning her reality while she's there and encountering some pretty spooky creatures in the process, mm. not to give too much away. <laughs> a climate <laughs> novella. Uh, well, Tiffany, you're prepared to, to read an excerpt. Yeah. So this is uh, from, I think it's chapter one. You'd think I'd have the whole book memorized by now. But <laughs> All right, yes. Here's an excerpt for chapter one. A loon shrieked a mournful call over the water. The sound was unmistakable, but impossible. Loons typically lived in ponds only in the summer to nest and raise their young. She hoped she might find the bird, do some preliminary sketches and paint it. Landscape painting had come so naturally to Rita with her deep love for art and nature, but with no mind for science. Ever since she was a child, she would devour natural history books absorbed in learning everything she could about the local species climate ecology, thrilled to name and know the world around her. The odd time when she would visit her father, he would teach her the Mi'kmaq name, the words resonating in her subconscious, nesting there for later understanding. In the dim light, in the dim morning light of the cabin bedroom, Rita squinted, listening for the loon. Now that the climate was in chaos, now that the Atlantic coast felt the flame and choked on wildfire smoke earlier and earlier each summer, the rhythms were off. The sweltering, stifling spring humidity had tricked all life, disrupting the cycles that had existed from the beginning of time. Everything was tainted, including her. Her hands shook a little as Rita willed the memory of the previous night away and pulled up the stiff, dirty window. The paint peeled at the edges a dull white that revealed soft wood. The cabin was shabby chic, or so the listing had said. In these cases, chic was always a relative term. That was okay for her purposes. The rustic nature of the place made people think it was authentic, whatever that meant. The humid air grasped at her throat as the loon's call grew louder. Rita scanned the pond's placid waters, trying to pinpoint the bird's silhouette in the distance. The fog rolled thick over the horizon, smothering the tops of the surrounding trees. Somewhere along the shoreline, or in some hidden inlet, Rita could hear splashing, a choking sound of distress. An animal noise, or fear beyond language. Was something out on the water? Something from the night before? The loon's call, maybe an echo from her troubled dreams, trembled over the expanse of the pond and faded again into quiet. What clung to the small of her back? Oh, yeah, is that time? No, 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 go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, keep going. This is great. I love it. Keep going, please. Okay. I, I didn't have a timer, so I don't know when to stop. You have to tell me. <laughs> what clung to the small of her back? Rita pulled her white t-shirt from her skin and scratched a mosquito bite on her arm, feeling suddenly alone. Sure, that was the point, space to concentrate on her paintings to make the most of the grant she'd been awarded. But Molly was right. Her loneliness was less sharp out here in the country, in a place where everything was both solitary and part of something bigger than itself. The pond was the biggest in the province, a few kilometers around, surrounded by forest and trail. Surely it would offer a lot in the way of inspiration, especially for a landscape painter. 
On a shelf in the bedroom, Rita found an old battery-operated radio and switched it on. Success, the battery still had charge. She turned the dial, scanning the band. A country station, twangy guitar. Another country station, twangy autotune. Rita wrinkled her nose. She could measure city limits by the prevalence of country stations. Her fingers rolled over the dial, the line metal reminding her of her childhood afternoons playing with her grandparents' weird old-timey antiques. Static, static, static. Faint conversations cut through with more static, forming languages that were not comprehensible as English or French, sounding more like rustling leaves and sighs. Maybe I'll stop there. <laughs> mm. No, this is this really, really sounds good, and I just love the the whole setting there. And are are most of your your scary stories? Do they deal with uh, Mi'kmaq or Mi'kmaq culture in society? Yeah, definitely. Um, in this case, my protagonist, she's uh, reconnecting. So she's a bit more estranged um, from her culture than, say, I am, even though other parts of the book are semi-autobiographical. Um, but I really try to incorporate language reclamation uh, where I can. I'm still learning Mi'kmaq myself. So um, that's a big thing in all of my writing. Mm -hmm. And I noticed that in many of the stories in Never Whistle at Night, there are, are many references to indigenous issues and topics, which I make them makes it makes them really relatable, I, I think, to to indigenous and native readers. And Richard, I want to go back to you. And, and who are some of your your scariest uh, or your favorite scary authors? And what are some of your favorite books and, and scary movies as well? Ooh, this is like Christmas for me. Tiffany, you're going to start grinding your molars. You're going to be so happy with my little list. Okay, I love that we're all like disciples of the darkness here. Um, I really love Takumi. It's an anthology of Arctic horror. That's T-A-A-Q-T-U-M-I. Takumi means darkness in Inuktitut. It's published by Inhabit Media. Uh, it's spiritual horror, it's climate horror, it's body horror, and it, it's been unmatched in my book in terms of spiritual horror. I didn't read a lot of spiritual horror in Never Whistle at Night. I read there was some body horror. There wasn't a whole lot of splatterpunk, um, but I love Taktumi. Um, I don't know if you know Brady Sinellis, he wrote American Psycho. Um, I, my favorite book of his is Imperial Bedrooms. Um, there's a there's two pages and they haunt me daily. And I go back maybe once a year to have, I don't know why I do this, Shane or Tiffany, but I go back <laughs> once a year and I reread the two pages that talk about the crossing place. I'll leave it at that. Uh, Jamie C. Fournier, also published by Inhabit Media, has a children's book called The Other Ones. And I've said that these are childhood ending stories. I'm not quite sure why they released this onto the planet. I'm not sure. Anyways, I think warriors will be born from reading that that particular book. I'm I'm, I'm in awe. Um, but the good news is you talked about Shane about the call, the appetite for indigenous horror. Um, Kegadon's Press has a call for indigenous horror right now. I believe it's closed. We all I've been accepted, so I've got worked on a new story. So keep an eye out for that. I don't know what it's called yet, but Kegadon's Press it will be having it published next year. And then for Arctic writers, writers who live uh, north of 60, um, Inhabit Media is looking for more Arctic terror and the deeply unsettling in Taktumi Volume 2. 
I know that Shane and Theo are already looking for writers for Never Whistle at Night, Volume 2. But in terms of movies, if I could just say, I, did everybody here watch Talk To Me? Did you finally sit around and watch Talk To Me, both of you? It was the big scary Not- movie of the year. That was the one up in the in the rural Alaskan village. Uh, I don't I don't think so, but I think it's going to be on Netflix today as a treat. But if you can, I'm just going to give you a list of seven movies I double dog rib dare all of you to everyone listening to watch. Okay, so you are not my mother. It's a foreign foreign movie. Uh, okay. You won't be alone. You won't be. I cried. I cried the entire two hours. It's beautiful. It's marketed as a horror and it's brutal. It's also a commentary on the beauty of life. It's called You Won't Be Alone. Uh, Hereditary, of course, and Midsummer. Brilliant, beautiful, uh, gory, but brilliant. Uh, Paranormal Activity, the entire series, I think is fantastic. The Descent, I never saw that coming. The first one, don't watch any of the other sequels, just the first one. Uh, VHS is absolutely the first one it is brilliant um but yeah i just i'm always up when people say and of course somebody's released it for free on on youtube begotten i double dog i said begotten is like a peep cam broadcasting footage from hell and it's the one movie people go 30 seconds in and they say no 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 done they surrender i know you're Richard, now. this be is crying later, baby. I'm telling you, I'm going to be okay. Go watch it. I'm going to be watching. Walk it there. I'm going to be watching horror movies until Thanksgiving with all these picks you've oh. got here, and uh, and some of these books as well. And I love some of these terms. You know, splatter punk and horror, uh, climate horror, climate novella, disciples of darkness. I mean, this is just this is a really growing genre from an indigenous perspective. And when did this really take off? When did indigenous horror, do you think, really, really blow up? Uh, if I could just say, I think that we have our aunties to thank here in on, in Canada, uh, you know, like Lee Miracle, Janet Armstrong, Beth Brandt, um, you know, Christos with her poetry. Um, they made it really easy for us to write horror because, of course, they were our trailbreakers. They're our matriarchs. They broke so many trails for us. They kicked down so many doors of us documenting the horror of being Indigenous, surviving, you know, this attempted, never-ending attempts at genocide. And so I think the new generation of writers, like Tiffany and myself, I think I'm mid-career, but Tiffany is, I mean, you are a force. Tiffany, I need your book. I need your book yesterday. So let's talk. Can you write to me? Uh, anyways, so yeah. <laughs> I, I, feel, I feel like Right now, writers, we've we've it, it has been done. But the residential school stories, absolutely. Sixty scoop foster care, absolutely, and they're continuing to be published. Absolutely. What I'm finding is writers now and readers are wanting genre writing from indigenous writers. So they want romance, they want fantasy, they want erotica, they want sci-fi, speculative fiction. We're ready for more, and I think that that horror is just the next evolution in in welcoming you into our you know into our homes into our communities and saying this is what terrifies us it may be different where you're from but this is genuinely what terrifies us and we hope it terrifies you too tiffany i want to get your thoughts as well because you know i know like in in some cultures and 
you know, there, there are those taboo topics and, and some types of scary stories that I, I think in some communities, they're, they're kind of kept within the community or even within families. And are, are you ever kind of careful with your writing to not maybe share too much information or any stories that might be too personal or, or too closely related to, to your own people that you just don't feel comfortable sharing? Yeah, for sure. I'm always trying to be mindful of that. Um, and I know that there's probably even some disagreement in even uh, bringing Mi'kmaq language into a horror genre. I haven't heard anything directly, but it was something I had some level of anxiety about because the language has sacred knowledge in it, right? And it's not to be misused, but I always root it in the experience of the character and the experience of myself. So it's not me trying to necessarily um, break protocol or anything like that. It's just um, what a Mi'kmaq character experiencing that sort of thing might think and uh, trying to go about it that way. So. All right. I want to go ahead and bring in a third guest into our conversation. Mandy Harris is joining us from Cortland, Idaho. She is a children's librarian and currently a PhD student in information science at the University of Washington. She's a citizen of the Cherokee Nation. Hi, Mandy. Happy Halloween, and thank you for joining us today. Yo, hello. Happy Halloween. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And we are talking about horror today and these darker sides of life. And tell us a little bit about what young readers, young Native and Indigenous readers can expect uh, from this new growing, it's not a new genre, but it's certainly a growing genre with regard to, to Indigenous horror. What's the impact on young readers? Oh, young readers can have so much fun reading books um, in genres, reading horror books, reading thrillers, reading mysteries. Um, it helps them develop resilience because it lets you practice being scared and then recovering from being scared. So it also, it lets you kind of navigate emotions in kind of a controlled environment. You can explore scary things and then you can close the book. And then there's also the adrenaline that comes from reading scary books, from reading horror books. Um, it gets kids reading. You want to see what happens next. And especially for kids who might be reluctant readers, that excitement, that adrenaline that pulls you in and keeps you turning the page, um, it helps kids really, really live in the world and, and just continue a love of reading. Okay. Well, this is interesting what I'm hearing from you, that if I'm hearing correctly, that reading some of these books and, and being in this situation where you're scared, that, that can be a healthy thing for a young person. It can help them grow. Is that right? Exactly. Yes, because you're navigating. So the world, especially when you're a child, um, you're experiencing new things, unfamiliar things all the time. Um, the world can be a wonderful place, but it can also be a scary place with challenges and things that we're not yet familiar with or that we don't fully understand as we're growing up. So when we enter the world of a book, we can explore things that are new, things that might be frightening, or things that, um, as Dr. Rudine Sims-Bishop says, um, books can serve as mirrors, windows, or sliding glass doors. So mirrors that may reflect our lives back at us or windows that allow us to see into a different life. 
so when we're navigating um, scary things through a book, through horror books, through thrillers, through mysteries, um, it's in this controlled environment. So we can practice um, fear and looking for clues and recognizing when things don't feel quite right and then working through that and then closing the book and navigating the fear and learning from it. Well, this is Mandy Harris, and she is a librarian, a children's librarian in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, also a PhD student, and uh, giving us some really good information, especially as a parent uh, of a young child. I can certainly appreciate uh, this idea that kids can be acclimated uh, with fear, and it can be a healthy environment for them to, to read some of these books and put them in that kind of scary place uh, for a temporary amount of time. So we're going to talk more with Mandy and our other guests on the other side of this break. Again, anybody listening who would like to share any kind of scary stories or references regarding Halloween, give us a call. 1-800-99-NATIVE. Does your club, institution, or other group need custom branded apparel? A wide variety of t-shirts, hoodies, and much more, all custom printed or embroidered, are available from nativescreenprinting.com, a division of Skyscreen Printing who support this program. Are you a welder? For over 40 years, D&R Tank, who support this show, have provided tanks and tank maintenance to communities throughout the Southwest and is currently hiring experienced welders. Info at 505-873-1101. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking about some of our favorite spooky Indigenous books today with Indigenous authors including Richard Van Camp and Tiffany Morris. They have short stories in the recently published Never Whistle at Night, an indigenous dark fiction anthology. We want you to join us. What draws you to horror stories and creepy tales? Tell us at 1-800-996-2848. And our guest right now, Mandy Harris, is a children's librarian. And Mandy, what you described earlier, this idea that children can learn from being scared I really like that concept, but I'm also a little bit leery because I have a nine-year-old at home and my wife and I have learned that we've got to be really careful sometimes with scary stories and scary movies because sometimes she gets really, really scared and it, it kind of worries me because she'll get you know, a little too agitated over stories and books and things like that. So any tips for how to, to, to as parents, how we can kind of help facilitate this process of introducing our young children to horror stories? Yes. So as parents, as caregivers, you know your child best. And so I would recommend parents and caregivers working, you know, with their child and um, recognizing as you do um, when something might be a little bit too much, because we want, we always want reading to be fun. We want it to be something enjoyable and not something that they associate with being scared. Um, so you could start with, um, I would start with gentle mysteries, um, gentle scary stories. You know, even um, in toddler story time, I used to read a book called Go Away Big Green Monster, where the monster appears little by little. Like first you see the face and then the eyes. And then as you get to the middle of the book, you start scaring off the monster. And you say, go away, go away. And you scare off the monster. So it's these um, kind of gentle sort of empowering um, stories that we can start even, you know, with the board book or the picture book, you know, that toddler preschool age. And then as we move into, you know, that elementary age, that middle grade, you know, nine-year-old, there's um, a series um, out of Canada by Michael Hutchinson. It's called the Mighty Muskrat Mystery Series. Um, and it's a group of four Cree kids 
who solve mysteries on their reserve. So there's a, a case of Windy Lake, the case of the missing auntie, uh, the case of uh, the burgled bundle, and the case of the rigged race. And um, they solve mysteries. And so it's this, um, you've got the feeling of friendship and community and camaraderie, but there's also the looking for clues, the little bit of spookiness as you solve the mystery, and then the mystery is solved in the end. So um, there's ways to kind of gently introduce some of this in a way that really empowers our children, um, especially as caregivers and parents, you know your kids best and what's going to be the best um, route for them. Two recommendations, go away big green monster for preschool, kindergarten age, I imagine, and then elementary readers, the Mighty Muskrat Mystery Series. Mandy, how about um, introducing young children to, to writing scary stories? Any thoughts or any tips for, for how to get kids putting pen to paper? Oh, I love that idea, um, especially because writing the scary story, you know, really puts them um, in control. So they get to decide how scary it is. And then they also get to kind of explore what they find frightening and then how they would handle it. Um, I think it's such a great idea. You could, um, there are uh, story dice um, that you can get that you can play with where um, you toss it up in the air or you could make your own. You just write different story prompts down and then you toss it up the air, in the air and it lands and you choose a setting and you choose a character, and you choose um, maybe something that happens. Or another thing that's fun to do is to sit around. You could be a family, and you could write the story together as your family. You sit around um, in a circle, and each person tells something that happens, and then it goes to the next person. And so you kind of create the story as a group. Um, I love the idea of kids writing their own stories um, and being really the creator of what they find um, scary. And Mandy, do you enjoy yourself just sitting down and, and reading scary stories sometimes and, and just going down that road and, and getting as, <laughs> as caught up in, in some of these creepy tales as possible? Yes, I am actually uh, listening to the audiobook of uh, Never Whistle at Night. And um, I almost missed my stop this morning on the train um, because I was listening so intently to these like beautifully crafted stories. And then I was I was walking down the street um, headed to um, headed to teach uh, this morning on the UW campus. And uh, I was so lost in the story and it was broad daylight and I had uh, hair standing up on the back of my neck. Yeah, I thought some of them were, were really on point. And, and I love the nuance in the stories in, in Never Whistle at Night. And, and some of them were kind of like these deep thought kinds of situations where, where characters were, you know, you just weren't really quite sure what was happening, but you knew it was definitely like this creepy journey that they were going on. And Tiffany, in addition to, to being a contributor to, to Never Whistle at Night, what are some of your favorite stories from the anthology by other authors? Oh my God. You know, I was asked this and I had such a hard time choosing. Like I legitimately loved every story that I read. Um, absolutely Richard's story. Um, Morgan Talty's story. Um, Carson Faust's story. Um, the one with the snakes. I, I apologize. I don't have it in front of me right now. Yeah. I mean, there's something in it for everybody. 
There, there is, and I, I love. There was one story that that dealt with blood quantum and and this um, young parent that had these children, and it was like this weird take on like this dark side of like the blood quantum issue. And I just thought that was like so relevant to to I think what we're dealing with in, in so many communities right now. And Richard, how about you? What are some of your favorite stories from from Never Whistle at Night? Well, I agree with Tiffany. I love Morgan Morgan Talpey's The Prepper, and I love Sheree Demoline's TikTok. Um, and you know, I just want to say, you know, hats off to Penguin Random House for publishing Never Whistle at Night because it's Indigenous excellence. Like it was Indigenous edited, Indigenous written, and every voice actor in the audiobook, because so many of our communities don't have bookstores anymore. So if you don't have one, just please get on Audible or get on Apple and, and, and buy the, the ebook because, you know, the Indigenous actors like Shane G Ghostkeeper did a beautiful job with Scariest Story Ever. And, he, and Shane was a joy to work with. And, you know, he has so many great questions about, you know, pronunciation and protocols. And, and it was just, wonderful and when you listen to him or any of the other native american or indigenous voice actors they've got that grace they've got the breath pause they've got the bush accent when they need it they can bring the heavy when they need to and mm -hmm. the whispers are actually more terrifying than anything <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah that's true yeah it's those it's yeah, it definitely is those moments when you just don't really quite know what's happening. That's when you get the most freaked out. Richard, when did have you always been in to horror in writing scary stories, or is this something that you kind of got into later in life? Oh, good question. I mean, I was born and raised in Fort Smith, Northwest Territories, and so I grew up, you know, reading Stephen King and Heavy Metal magazine, and and of course, you know, with Cinemax and HBO and the Movie Channel in the '80s, it was such a great time to be alive because you were, I mean, Freddy, you know, you had Freddy, uh, you had, you know, Friday 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street and all the Stephen King adaptations. And just somewhere along the way, I think so many of us who are, you know, I'm 52 now, realize, well, nobody's bringing our horror to the page or to the graphic novel or to the screen. And it's our time now to, to share what really terrifies us. Um, and that, I think that, you know, we're all starving to see ourselves. And I really appreciate what Mandy said that, you know, books can be a mirror or sliding door and, and I can't remember the third one, but I mean, certainly a mirror. We want to see ourselves because when you watch horror or read horror, you're always asking, well, what would I do? Number one, I wouldn't trip. I, I've already figured that out. <laughs> B, you know, you, you know, can I just sit behind a tree and wait? Like, why do I have to run? <laughs> Remember they say when you get lost in the forest, stay still. Right? Can I set snares? Can I set you know, dead traps? You know what I mean? What <laughs> right. can I do right. to fight back? They ain't going down alone. You know what I mean? I know, I know. I always think, well, if I went through that doorway, I definitely look behind the door before I walked in the room. I definitely would make sure I had a good flashlight before I went down in the basement. You know, it's all these things. You're well, like, what are they doing? What are they doing? Mandy, nice. And when you're in a crowd, just trip a cousin. Like, it's good. You got one. You got let us <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Mandy, Richard references that analogy of that mirror, that mirror that we look at it as Indigenous people when we, we read these books and, and hear these stories. And and what is it just psychologically do you think about? Why why do we just love to, to, to be scared? Because some of these things, I mean, 
These are horrible things to think about, things that you never want to happen in real life. But when it's in a story, we just can't get enough. Uh, I know. I was thinking about that, um, and I was thinking about being a kid um, growing up, um, The X-Files. I loved to watch The X-Files as a kid growing up in the 90s. And um, even though it scared me, um, I just couldn't get enough of it. And I still watch it. And even though it still scares me, I just can't get enough of it. And I think, um, and you know, the um, the preface, the introduction to Never Whistle at Night um, has a lot of really fantastic things to say about this. I was nodding along with it because um, life can be scary. Um, life is unpredictable. And um, horror, when it's truly effective, it brings in, um, it's the elements um, uh, of realness. It, I think Stephen Graham Jones says in the, in the introduction to the book that it's um, these elements of realness that truly make it um, horror and truly make it scary. So it, it reflects real life back at us, but then it adds those elements of the fantastical um, that uh, make it a little more um, fun. It adds that element of fun to it um, because in, in real life, we face these scary times, these challenges, this unpredictability of life and then also because um, books follow a pattern stories have a shape to them and a familiarity to them and so as we turn the page we know we're kind of on um, a journey that might be new to us through this story but it feels familiar enough that it's accessible um, whereas life can be kind of unpredictable at times mm -hmm. Tiffany, back to you, because I, I do feel that in the, the literary industry, there is a, kind of a tendency to look at the horror genre as kind of less than when compared to like other types of literature, you know, the more classical or traditional types of stories. And uh, but it sounds like that's changing. And um, do you feel that that horror can be every bit as impactful and every bit as profound as is some of this stuff we read about, like Pulitzer Prize winning novels and things like that, if done correctly? Oh, for sure. I mean, I don't know if anyone, like, well, lots of people have read Beloved, and it doesn't get classified as a horror novel, but to me, like, watching that, it's some of the scariest, like, reading it, it's some of the scariest I've ever been. <laughs> mm -hmm. Deeply frightening, uh, contending with history and uh, with brutality and just, you know, um, very real things. And I mean, that's Toni Morrison. She was one of the best American writers to ever exist. So if she can write something truly horrifying, then I think we can, you know, um, work within horror to write really beautiful, horrifying things that have social commentary on it and kind of live in that space. That social commentary piece, I think that's key because that's what, uh, what really makes uh, a really impactful horror story is when it has that element as opposed to just like a slasher film or something like that that doesn't really have a message beyond it. But, you know, mentioning Beloved, it really makes me think of, of Killers of the Flower Moon. And, you know, of course, the movie's out now, but the book dates back a few years. And there, there's kind of at some point there's a fine line between what we think of as just uh, – you know, like historical fiction or, or drama, and then what we think of as horror. Because I think in some ways, reading that book, there were definitely parts. I mean, I talked to my sister, and she's like, I couldn't keep reading it. I got so freaked out. I just had to stop. So that's definitely like what we think of as horror, isn't it? Yeah, I would say so. And I mean, I think some slashers can have some social commentary and things like that. Um, I think that horror always reflects kind of what is happening in society at a given time especially if you look at movies and stuff. And then 
literature speaks to that and the literature that gets adopted when we'll always kind of comment on the moment that we're in. So it's, it's always really interesting to see these cycles come through. And it's really exciting that Native voices are being brought into that commentary as well. Mm -hmm. Well, Mandy, uh, we're starting to wind down the show now. we got a couple minutes before we have to wrap up. But I I'm curious, what are your plans this evening for Halloween? I have very boring plans. For oh, Halloween. no. <laughs> I, I know. I, well, it's not boring. I am very lucky to be teaching a class of very brilliant library and information science students. So I will be grading their papers tonight. <laughs> Under the under the the the, can, the light of a jack o' lantern, perhaps maybe you'll be grading papers and how I, much? You know what? And I might turn something scary on in the background. I'll probably turn I'll probably turn a scary movie on in the background. There you go. There you go. Tiffany, how about you? What are your plans? I am going to the pond that inspired Green Fuse Burning. I'm going to introduce the book to it, not by throwing it in, but I'm just going to carry it with me and give thanks to the area and probably watch a horror movie when I get home. Oh, that sounds like a really cool way to spend Halloween. And Richard, what are your plans? Holding my little one's hand and walking with friends and our the family of our heart here in Edmonton, Alberta, Treaty 6 territory, and celebrating with flashlights and uh, and really cool outfits. And just anyone listening, you know, let's make sure we, we put lights on our little ones, walk with flashlights. It's getting so dark now. And also, Shane, I just wanted to say commonsensemedia.com is a great resource for little ones. Our little one is 9-2, and sometimes they hear from a friend, I want to watch this. And if you go on Common Sense Media, it's free. You enter the title of the book or the movie. You can actually read reviews from other kids and teachers and parents about where they think it's age-appropriate. That's gotten us out of a lot of, a lot of you know, possibly really scary movies that our little one wasn't ready for. So I just wanted to put that out there. Appreciate it, thank Richard. Thank you for having me. This is, this is just fantastic. You bet. You bet. Yeah, Common Sense Media. Thanks for that resource uh, for our younger readers and their families. Now, folks, unfortunately, we are out of time now, so we're going to have to wrap things up. But before we do, to Tiffany Morris, Mandy Harris, and Richard Van Camp, thank you all for sharing your creepy stories with us on today, Halloween. Hope you'll listen to us again tomorrow here on Native America Calling. We'll be having a conversation about the continuing difficulty in resolving some Native adoption cases. Until then, you've been listening to the one, the only, Native America Calling. Have a great Halloween. More tribes are using drones from Cayuse Native Solutions to economically collect data for disaster response, aerial inspections, and more. More about drone services available at CayuseNativeSolutions.com who support this show. Support by Drummond Woodsum, a full-service law firm whose nationally recognized tribal nations practice provides services to tribal nations and their enterprises and to companies that do business with tribes across the country. More at DWMLaw.com. Yat 
Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davis. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.